Really, really excited. Glad to be with you this morning. Uh, we are going to be working primarily out of Acts 2. If uh, you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles and get headed that direction. One thing is I prepared this week, uh, spent a lot of time really wrestling. Of all the things to wrestle with, I wrestled with the introduction. And I kept running with this thought that our last words are important things. There's lots of famous last words. So I spent a week looking at, at famous last words. You'd be amazed at some of the things people say on their way out. But one of these guys that I came across was this fellow named Patrick Henry. You know, you probably heard of the Patrick Henry. That's the, the give me liberty or give me death guy. All right? He was uh, born in Virginia, or well, born in, uh, born in uh, England, but he was from the Virginia colony whenever they were settling. Homeschooled lawyer, farmer, orator, uh, spent a lot of time uh, working with uh, the Virginia and, and, and with uh, the uh, uh, Congressional Congress and stuff like that, and uh, trying to get, you know, this country set up. He's a founding father. Now, as he's passing away, he's got a pretty cool quote that really just kind of stuck with me. Doctor, I wish you to observe how real and beneficial the religion of Christ is to a man about to die. I thought, man, that's, that's got a little bit of punch to it. You know, despite what the, I don't know, the revisionists or the secular guys would have us think about our founding fathers. I mean, this guy stood for something. That's something to say right there. And he goes on in his will. He says, this is, this, I mean, if, if that, that was his last words on his way out, this was his last words in his will and testament. This is all the inheritance I give to my dear family. The religion of Christ, which will give them one, which will make them rich indeed. I thought, man, that's, that's, that's the kind of guy you'd want to be in charge, isn't it? That's a pretty good dude right there. And, and uh, man, you just... These last words, these last thoughts as somebody's exiting this life, they mean something. It says something about their character. says something about who they are. It goes without saying then that the last words, the last instructions, those last few days, you know, John led us through the resurrection last week, but the resurrection wasn't, wasn't it. It wasn't the end of the story. Jesus ran around. He, he did. He ran around for about 40 days and, and, and showed himself. We're going to talk about that this morning. And he had a lot to say in that 40 days before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And today, that's really what you and I are going to be looking at. What did Jesus have to say? What, what does it mean to you and I? So we're going to jump right into this thing. We're going to be in Acts again, chapter 1. And we're going to be going from earth to heaven. We'll take the big bite first. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when the Lord had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Big bite. You just read the big bite, you can kind of get lost. So we're going to take this thing in small chunks. We're going to work our way through it. All right? Acts 1.1, very, very first verse. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that just kind of leaves us with the question, what do you mean the first book? Well, the key word there is Theophilus. That kind of gives us the key to who wrote the book of Acts. It was a gospel writer. It was Luke. All right? The apostle Luke. Well, and the first book, and, and you can tell this because when you go to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what he says. Inasmuch as, I, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses, key word, eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. There's that name again. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And we get three things from Luke's introduction to the Gospel of Luke. One, we get that Luke wrote it. Uh, we get that he's trying to present uh, an orderly account. In other words, he's putting things together. Luke does things a little differently than Matthew. He does things a little differently. Whereas uh, those guys can tend to be more chronological Luke tends to be focused on the themes. He's putting the themes all in order as he writes. And he's trying to put together this orderly account. And his orderly account, he did not run around with Jesus the same way the rest of the apostles did. He instead, as his, as his doctor, he interviewed, interviewed all the eyewitnesses to accumulate this account and present this gospel. And what he's telling us in Acts is, hey, I'm the same guy. I'm presenting this to the most excellent Theophilus. Whoever this guy is, he must have been something in Greek society. It's a nice little title from Luke. We go back to our verse, Acts 1, 2 through 3. Until that day when he was taken up, after he, that is Jesus, had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He had presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days 
and speaking about the kingdom of God. So again, Luke's referring back, hey, hey, I've talked to you about this Jesus. I've presented uh, the, what he has taught so far uh, up to his life, you know, up through his ministry while he was on before he was resurrected. Um, and now he's going to shift us into, you know, the history of the church. But he says, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands. So it kind of begs the question, what are the commands right before he was taken up that Jesus gave? And a lot of you guys, if you've been in church a long time, you've heard this phrase before, the Great Commission. You guys all heard that before? And most of us, when we hear uh, the Great Commission, all right, what we really think about is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's kind of the, uh, the cookie cutter. That used to be uh, whatever. If you got an email from me just a couple years ago, that was at the bottom of my email on every single one of them. It was Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But Luke also presents the Great Commission, but he does it from a slightly different angle. So if we go to Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 48... Luke presents it like this. He says, Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he said, you are witnesses. Again, we're going back to those eyewitness statements. He says, you are witnesses of these things. All right, big, a couple of big thoughts here to grab a hold of. First of all, he opens our minds to understand the scriptures and says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. What, 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 really, what Jesus is really getting across here is he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, to look at the Old Testament and to see that all the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ. So we just celebrated Easter, and right before Easter was the Passover. This makes a real easy, easy point. Now, I love, uh, Rob put together those packets. I don't know, I hope you guys got a chance to pick up the family packets. And it had a little, a, a Passover presentation, but that Passover was not exactly the same Passover celebration that was celebrated by the Jews. The Jews, when they celebrated Passover, with their tradition, all right, they looked uh, at the at the tenth plague there in Egypt, and then God was going to pour out His wrath and, and kill all the firstborn in Egypt. But they were to eat this lamb, sacrifice this lamb, and put this blood on their doorpost. And the the destroying angel that was going to come would pass over that house, and so the Jewish children were saved. Now, in a sense, that was fulfilled that night. That's exactly what happened in history. That's that that that's there. But it was really pointing. To Jesus, It was pointing to the real Passover lamb that would die for our sins, that you and I would be covered by his blood, that the, one day there is going to be another destroying angel and we will be passed over ourselves through the blood of Christ. So even in the Old Testament, all these different Old Testament stories, Abraham up on the mountain with Isaac, we're really looking towards Christ. Uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny there with Daniel in the fire. We're looking at Christ. And he's telling you, look, when you're reading, going through the Old Testament, you need to be looking for Jesus. There are some seminaries, I will tell you, uh, I had a couple classes that were more liberal, uh, and they would kind of get on to you for that. 
and it was foolishness. I, I, even, I thought I was going to get an F. I didn't. I got an A in the class, but I, I told them it was heresy. What they were saying was wrong, because it was. We are to be looking for Christ. He gives us the model himself. We are to see Christ. So when we're looking through the Old Testament, we're to see those laws and those traditions all as reflections pointing us and moving us towards Jesus Christ, that he would be exalted and lifted high up in our minds as we see pictures of him. That's really the point of all of that stuff, was to lead us step by step by step to Christ. Now, if you guys remember, I had the, the, the word witnesses in red. That's a big word. That's an important word. Matter of fact, we've seen witnesses come up again. We're going to see witnesses come up several times here. And witnesses is, a, is in the Greek word, the Greek language is martis. And it means, just like we say, a witness. That's a transliteration. And it means in a legal sense, or in a historical sense, or in an ethical sense, i.e., those who, after his example, have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. That's how Strong's has got it labeled out. So in this sense, the apostles, in a legal sense, Paul would stand before Rome, and he would testify. He would be a witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ in a legal sense. In a historical sense, we get their testimony throughout history. What I want you to see is, is in an ethical sense, these eyewitnesses testified and gave up their lives, by and large. As a matter of fact, every one of the apostles would be martyred with the exception of the apostle John, who they tried to kill, and he just, they, they, they couldn't kill him. They dipped him in burning oil, and they sent him off to the island of Patmos to die, where he wrote the book of Revelation. But they were eyewitnesses. In other words, um, if I tell you something and I lie to you and you get sold, well, I'm going to feed you to the lions if uh, you don't recant what's on now. You may believe what I say and be willing to die for that. You may say, you know what, I, I, I think that's Sean. But there is a difference here. These guys didn't die for stuff that they believed that somebody told them. They died for something they saw. The reason their witness stood so strong in the course of history, what's important for you and I to grasp is these were people who, who didn't hear that Jesus was resurrected. They seen him. Thomas, touch my holes in my hand. Now, somebody could die for something that they believe in. There are uh, uh, Islamic people that will tie a bomb on themselves and run into a crowd and blow themselves up for something that they believe. All right? But not one person, let alone a, 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 you might get a crazy person. Who knows? There's crazy people out there. But you're not going to get a ton of people, thousands of people, who would stand up and knowingly, willingly die for a lie. These were eyewitnesses. The reason that they could stand as, as uh, let's feed them to the lions. Let's light them on fire. Let's kill, either, either call me God and deny Jesus Christ or die. And they couldn't do it because they'd seen Jesus with their own eyes. Their faith wasn't a blind faith of just believe. They had witnessed it. They had witnessed it, all right? Paul will go on to write 1 Corinthians. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So uh, up until that point, you're, you're getting the gospel really laid out to you, really clear and simple. It's why it's our motto here at the church. You'll see that verse uh, underneath. But, but he noticed that we keep saying, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. Again, looking back at the Old Testament and recognizing there's Jesus there, there's Jesus there, everything's moving me to Jesus. It's according to the scriptures. And that he then appeared, and listen to how he phrases this. He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' kid brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, Paul says he appeared also to me. Now, in just the, the numbers that were given there, right, we're given at least 514 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. But here's a problem with that. Do you guys notice the first person he said was Cephas? Now we know that there was a couple Marys at least that seen. We know there was a couple other people that seen. In other words, the women and children are not included in the people that were seen the resurrected Christ. So even though we get 514, we're probably looking at closer to 1,000 or 1,500 people at least who literally laid their eyes on the resurrected Jesus Christ the vast majority of whom would be fed to the lions. Peter, crucified upside down, beheaded, torn apart in Roman Colosseums, to the tune of, uh, you know, again, every apostle except for John martyred, but to the tune of, by 300, the year 325, some 7 million Christians had been martyred for their faith. That first generation, again, all eyewitnesses. Not just something they believe, but they had seen him. And they stood in the face of an emperor and said, I can't call you God, man. I've, I've done seen him. I know him. I'm good. Feed me to the lions. I know what's waiting for me on the other side. S.M. Houghton, one of my favorite little books is called Sketches from Church History, and he's got this quote. Do you want martyr relics? Was a question once put to certain medieval sightseers in Rome. He said, take up the dust of the Colosseum. It is all the martyrs, was the advice given to them. That's how many Christians were brutally murdered. And what's crazy is that's, that's first century, uh, first few centuries, 325. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, it estimates that 90,000 90,000 Christians are martyred each and every year, which if you put that, okay, well, we got 300 years, that's roughly three times the rate of the early church. You get outside of the United States, the comfy confines here, it really still costs you something to be a Christian. Here's what's crazy. Rome did everything in their power. The Jews did everything in their power to, to persecute, to push the church down, to, to eliminate these people and, and to make this faith disappear. But they couldn't do it. As a matter of fact, the more uh, they, they, they fed them to the line, the more they persecuted, the more the Roman citizens who, I mean, the Colosseum was a bit of a show. You know, you, uh, you, know, you get together right now, and maybe you go to a buddy's house and you watch MMA. Everybody gets together and they watch these guys fight. Well, everybody got together at the Colosseum. And they watched these people fight. And they watched these slaves get fed to lions. That was their entertainment. And they watched these Christians 
get marched before, knowing full well, all they had to do was renounce Christ. I didn't see him. You're God. That's all they had to do. And they wouldn't do it. And what ended up happening is the persecution mounted and mounted and mounted. Christianity exploded. Absolutely exploded. Because these people have seen lots of people get fed to lions. They know how people respond. They know how criminals respond. They know how people that are lying respond to getting burned alive. They, they, they know exactly what that looks like. That isn't what was going on with these Christians. It was something totally different, and it caused explosive growth. And even today, with nearly three times as many Christians martyred, in the areas where the Christian persecution is the hardest, guess what's happening right now? The church is exploding. Absolutely exploding. Because guess what? Those people have seen what happens. They've seen people cave. They've seen people fall back on their... But that's not what's going on here, because Jesus Christ is still changing hearts. We may not get to see him face to face yet, but he's still working. He's still alive. He's still active. His church is still exploding. And the more you persecute it, the more you try to put the flame out, the more you fan it. It's been that way through all of history. Back to our text. He goes on and he gives us another order. So we got the, the command, right? The Great Commission. Right as Jesus is parting. But he gives another order. Acts 1, 4 through 5. And while staying with them, in other words, while Jesus was still with them, those 40 days, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In other words, Christ gives us a commission. He gave them a command. He said, you are to go to, from Jerusalem into Samaria, into Judea, into all the world, and you are to testify. You are to be my witnesses to the point of death. You are to tell the world the gospel. You are to tell them who I am, why I came. You are to lead people to Christ. That is what you are called to do. But, but you cannot do it yet. He gave them the command, but they weren't equipped yet. He said, you need to wait. You need to wait until you've got the Holy Spirit. In other words, not only does God call us in, give us a command, give us an order to carry out a mission, but he says, you cannot carry out that mission apart from me. You need to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill what I've called you to do, which is a pretty cool deal. Hey, we got God calling us into this cosmic mission to share, his, 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 to share him to the world, right? To share the message of salvation to the world. You and I are included. He doesn't need our help, all right? We're going to get to that. But he calls us in. He invites us in to participate. But he doesn't send us into it alone. He empowers us to be able to carry out a mission that apart from him, we could never, ever fulfill. And that's what we see. He goes on. So the disciples... Hard-headed disciples, they, don't, they, don't, they, they just never quite catch on. So they go, they shift, they ask a question. So when they come together, so they hear all this, and their response is, well, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because again, if you guys remember back as we talked through, what the apostles, what the, what the Jews really expected the Messiah to do was exactly that, restore the kingdom, a, a national 
identity, to free him from Rome, all this good stuff. And Jesus responds. He says, look, he doesn't say, no, 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 that'll never happen. That's not what he says. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, the Lord is going to give us, God gives us everything we need to lead us to him. But he doesn't give us every single detail. He doesn't give us the whole plan. If you've been a Christian for a long time and you've been trying to search for what your place is in the kingdom, raise your hand if he's given you the roadmap to that. That's what I thought. <laughs> when I graduated, I remember everybody asked, so what are you going to do? I don't know. Some of you are laughing because you had that conversation with me. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm saying. I got no clue. No clue at all. He has not given me the directions yet. I can't wait to find out. Really excited now that I'm here. Um, it's been a good thing. But he says, look, it's not for you to know those times. But, always love when he, has, when he, when he throws a but. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In other words, you cannot carry out my mission yet, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Again, that, that, that big word. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You guys know the story, right? That's exactly what happened. You and I are sitting in this room because that's what happened. God's word spread across all the Roman Empire. It leads us to the actual ascension. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So you got this group of disciples all standing around. Jesus is giving him those last words before he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he is at today. And he just, you just kind of picture him just, just kind of disappearing and, and everybody kind of standing there and all. And all of a sudden you kind of, kind of look back around and here's, here's two dudes. Every time them dudes show up, usually the first words out of their mouth are, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. Those two dudes are there and they're saying, hey, why are you looking up there? Just, just keep in mind, when, when he comes back, he's going to come back in the same way. Again, sticking with Luke, you know, because Luke wrote this. We're going to go back to Luke. Luke chapter 24, or 21, sorry. This is what he's got to say. This is looking forward to the day that Christ does come back on those clouds. And he paints us a picture. And Luke does a, a great job at 21. He's gonna, he gives all these different scenes. And again, just like we talked about with Passover, there's like an immediate fulfillment and then there's a cosmic fulfillment later when Jesus shows up. Uh, we look at Isaac and Abraham up there on that mountain. There was an immediate fulfillment. In other words, Abraham uh, prophesies. He really does. He doesn't even realize that's what he's doing, but that's what he's doing. He says, uh, God himself will provide a sacrifice. And he does. There's a ram caught in a thicket. There's a sacrifice. An immediate fulfillment. But there's a, 
a grander cosmic fulfillment that's coming. And was, as Luke is weaving through uh, chapter 21, he gives, the, uh, there's a lot of immediate fulfillment. In other words, Rome's going to come and it's going to destroy Jerusalem. And it's, there's not going to be a stone standing on a stone and all this different stuff. But then he gets to the end, all right? And we get a picture of the cosmic fulfillment. He says there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Now, if, if you guys remember from school, what causes the roaring of the sea and the waves? The moon, right? All right, so we get this picture that there's going to be some kind of issues going on. If you ever watch those space, you know, those, those movies where like the asteroid's coming and everybody knows it. And the whole world's panicking, and they're, you know, they're going to get that crew together and send them up with the mining equipment. You know, you, you guys have seen that flick? One of the 50 million that have been made, you guys know. The whole world's going to be in panic, in disarray. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. And if you've seen those movies, you've, you've seen that, like this little picture of it, you're like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. Jesus said it first. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In other words, okay, we can hear about wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff he talks about earlier, but he's saying, look, on this day, the whole world's going to be staring at the sky saying something's wrong, and they're going to be terrified. He says, and then, then, they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So again, we've, we, the ascension, he's, he's Rise it up on that cloud. The whole world's going to see. Not one person. I always tell everybody the same thing. Not one person is going to tell you Jesus Christ is coming. You will not see it on the news. I'm not going to tell you. John's not going to tell you. Nobody's going to tell you because we're all going to know it at the same time. If we're here when that happens, we're all going to look up and say, it's here. We're all The whole world, all at once. And coming in great glory. And I love it. When these things begin to take place, Jesus says, straighten up. Raise your heads, because your redemption is near. He says, you don't need to be like the rest of the world freaked out. It's time. I'm coming. I'm coming to get you. And he's coming on a cloud. It's going to be awesome. Maybe it'll be... 500 years from now. Maybe it'll be 1,000 years from now. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. I have no idea. What I do know is this, though. We're one day closer than we were yesterday. And I don't think it takes a, a, a rocket scientist. No, not, again, nobody's going to know that exact day, but I'll tell you, I think we're a lot closer to that day than we are to the day he left. That's what I would think, for what it's worth, which ain't much. So what's the point? Let's take all these verses, let's take all this information, lots of information, but what, ultimately, what does it mean to you? What, what is he trying to say here? What does that mean to you, and what does that mean to me? In my life, right now. All right, point number one. A, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared for 40 days to over 500 witnesses. Again, we get that 514 number, that is base. All right, we already know it's more than that based on just the, the, the ladies that seen him that didn't get counted. They just counted the guys there then, just like uh, we see the feeding of 5,000. It's men, that's all they counted, plus women and children, they didn't get a number on that. All right, same thing. 
over 500 eyewitnesses, many of whom, most of whom, were martyred for their faith, which is an affirmation, first of all, the resurrection, because what these people died for was that they seen Jesus. Not that they believed in Jesus. I want you to see the difference because that difference matters to you and I. Our faith is not blind. It's built on eyewitness testimony of people. You've got to grab that. You and I, Jesus says, blessed are those who, who believe who haven't seen. You and I are blessed. Jesus says so. Because we did not get a chance to see. But understand, these people, they all seen. They gave their life for what they seen. It's important. It affirms the resurrection. Of course, the resurrection affirms Christ's authority as the Son of God. He has the authority to pick up his life, and he has the authority to lay it down. He has the authority to provide salvation. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Lord. And therefore, the authority of the gospel is affirmed. The gospel that is being preached from him, given to the apostles, and freely given to us. Everything built, and that, that resurrection is huge. During that 40 days, point two, Christ opened the minds of the apostles to the scriptures and how they pointed to him, modeling for us how you and I should look at the Old Testament today. When you and I read that Old Testament, man, don't get, you know, I've talked to people, well, man, he begat, she begat, they begat, and I just get lost and I give up. Don't do that. Every time you see one of those begats, what I really want you to see, every time you see that is, there's a promise that is being fulfilled that is leading us to Christ. And if you can get that picture in your head, all of a sudden it starts getting excited. When you see, oh, man, this sacrificial stuff, law, whatever, it's, it's pointing us to the holiness of God. It's step-by-step it's step leading us, giving us a picture of God and his holy, a picture of Christ. It's all leading us to Christ. So read that Old Testament. I challenge you, if you, you have not, read the Old Testament, but read it looking for him because he's there. He wants us to find it. That, the, that lovely children's Bible that we're going through right now says every story points to him. That's exactly the truth. Every story whispers his name. We're getting there step by step by step. Again, you go back to the same thing. How are the Old Testament saints saved? I'll tell you how. The same way we are. They looked forward in history to a promise. They did not have a name like you and I have. We look back at Christ. They look forward to the promise of the coming Christ. They are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, the same as you and I are. No different. They just believed God. They had less information than we had. We've got a lot more, a lot less reasons not to believe as far as that goes. Point three. Prior to his ascension, the Lord once again promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit a promise that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost just 10 days after his ascension. So 10 days after Christ ascended, they were meeting in the upper room, and there came the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter to you? Well, let me tell you. Jesus said he's coming back. Matter of fact, if everything that Jesus said came true, and then Jesus says he's coming back, then it stands to reason. I could pretty much trust that, right? Like, I can, I can take that check to the bank. I, I No worries there. Jesus is coming. If he tells me to live a certain way for him, well, I can trust that he's, he's going to lead me on the right path. As a matter of fact, he hasn't given me anything that's wrong. Not one time. All right? So once again, we're seeing a promise fulfilled. Step three. This is a good one. At the end of the 40 days, Christ, or step four, Christ commissioned the church to carry the message of the gospel into the world, a message that still stands for each of us today 
and one that the Lord uses to sanctify us as he empowers us to fulfill it. So again, we can't carry the, we, we can't fulfill his task without the Holy Spirit inside of us. All right, he made them wait, we're no different. But understand, he's doing some things. Raise your hand if you've gone on a mission trip, a foreign mission trip. All right, you've gone to Mexico, you've gone to Peru, been down to Ninos, helped them kids. Keep your hands up, please. Now, everybody, everybody in the room, I want you to look around. I want you to look at those hands. All right? Now, listen carefully. Leave, leave them up, leave them up. I want you to put your hand down only if you went on that trip and you came back the same person that you was when you left. If God did not transform some part of you during that trip, you go ahead and lower your hand. I know it's a tricky way to word the question. Nobody lowered your hands. Because the truth, you guys can drop them now. Everybody says the same thing. I was blessed more than I could bless somebody. I changed. It gave me a different perspective on the world. I can't believe how fortunate we are here in America. I can't believe how fortunate I am for Christ. I can't believe as messy as I am that Jesus could use me to help somebody in that place. That's crazy. It's the sanctifying work. Uh, just like it's important that we are here at church. In other words, uh, you know, I love Jesus, man. He loves us and he accepts each and every one of us exactly as we are. He calls us to him. He, he doesn't say, get your act together and then come talk to me. Jesus says, you come here right now as you are. But, all right, and if that was the end, man, that would be boring. It really would. If, if all it was, was uh, a check mark. I'm saved, and I'm done, and I walk away, and that's it. How boring would our faith be? But that's not what's really going on here. Jesus says, okay, come to me as you are, and I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make you, in fact, I'm going to make you like me. That's his work. That's sanctification. That's the process of him transforming us little by little, step by step, making us into his image. And as we carry out the mission that he's called us to, so A, let me just give you, a, give you a big hint. You get to the, the book of Revelation. Jesus says, uh, behold, I'm making all things new. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, we might think that that's all taking place, you know, some cosmic future. That's when the sun's shaking and, and the moon's messed up and everybody, no, that, no, 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 no. He's began that process. There are people in this room, I'm one of them. I can tell you, Jesus made me new. Totally different dude. I mean, totally different dude. There's some of you in this room, you know the exact story. You can remember that day. You can remember how he changed. In other words, he was making something in you, new in you already from the beginning, but he's not done. He's restoring all the creation. He says, come here. You know, uh, I, I tell my son, help me change a tire. I really don't need his help. All right? I know it's going to be good for him, though. He needs to know how to do that. He's, he's going to be part of my little plan there or whatever. Well, God's got a cosmic mission. He says, come here. I'm going to use you for this. I'm going to have you participate in this. And, and not only do we get the, the awesome privilege and responsibility of carrying the gospel into the world, of, of being witnesses, of walking with Christ, being his hands and feet. That's what we are, the church, right? The body of Christ. You guys are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. If you've accepted him, you are his ambassador in this world. End of story. His words, not mine. And you are his body. And he says, all right we got some work to do. i got some work that I'm doing, and I'm inviting you to participate in it. This cosmic plan to make the world a better place. You guys remember being teenagers? 
You thought you were going to make the world a better place. Well, you are. You're right. That's exactly what Jesus Christ created you to do. And he invites you into it, and then he empowers you to carry out the mission. In other words, he gives you the resources to do it. And at the same time that he's doing that, and he's using you to make the world out there better, if you've been to Ninos, you've had the privilege of feeling what that feels like, to make somebody's life better. It's neat to be part of that. It's humbling to be part of that. But at the same time he's doing that, outside, he's working inside your heart. And he's transforming you and making you more and more like him, which is super cool. So you got him, grand plan, making all things new, making all things better, bringing restoration to this earth. And uh, hey, I'm going to call you out of it. I'm going to include you in my plan. I, I, I got some stuff that you can do. To, you know, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you the resources. I'm going to help you carry out a little part of that, and I'm going to make you better. And if that kind of gets your brain, you're like, man, that's kind of a, it's a big picture of what Jesus is doing for me. Good. It should be. It should make you look up and be like, man, that's pretty, I don't know. I get accused of using this word too often, but it's the right word for him. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's no wonder that Paul in Romans 8 says, God is working all things for good for those called according to his purpose. For those on the outside, right here on the inside for you and I, he's working all things for good. He's making all things new, making all things beautiful in its time. We got a long way to go to get to the completion, right? But we're all on the journey together with him and us the whole way. It's beautiful. Last point. Everybody take a deep breath. He's almost over. At the end of the 40 days, Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. No more sacrifices. That price for sin has been paid. We can rest in that. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to feel uneasy about my salvation. No, no, Jesus took care of the tab. That's great. He can sit down now. And what he's doing is carrying out the rest of that work through you and I. Sent it to the right hand of the Father. He left us some angelic messengers to remind us that in the same way he ascended, he will descend one day to gather his church to himself and to judge the wicked that remain. Is he returning to gather you home or is he returning to judge you? Because I promise that every promise he said is true. Everything he said to these guys, this, this ragtag group of folks, every last thing came to completion. A bunch of fishermen. I mean, seriously, these, are, these were not world changers. These are just regular dudes. Uh, these are my people, man. They're just regular guys. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God used them to change the entire world to where you and I are standing in this building today because he used them. So, is he returning? Absolutely. Is he going to gather his children home to a place that he has prepared for them? Bet your bottom dollar. But for those who would reject him, is he going to gather, are they going to be gathered to judgment? Absolutely. My hope and prayer for each of you is that on that day, when that cloud descends, you're going to stand up, you're going to look up, 
and you're going to cheer. <laughs> Jesus, you're back. Ah, I can't wait. You know, it's going to be, I mean, I get excited, man. Arenado hits a home run, man. I'm like, woohoo, let's go. It's nothing. It's nothing. That, that couldn't be less consequential. That day, golly, you think I said woohoo for that stupid video? Just wait, man. You guys are going to be able to hear me across town. It's going to be awesome. I hope you're there cheering with me. Let's pray. Worship team, if you want to come on down. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace every day. Working through all of creation, working through us individually, Lord. Thank you for, you know, we just closed out Easter. For giving yourself for us. Lord, thank you. Father, I just pray for each and every one of us that you would continue to, to lead and guide us, empower us to carry out your mission here on earth. If there's one person in this room that does not know you, Lord, I pray today could be the day of salvation. This would be the day they hear your call, they step forward. Let uh, pride or any other foolish, foolish thing get in the way. Today, because there is a day coming. We can't wait, Lord. We can't wait to cheer you on as you come down to collect us home. We love you. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for fulfilling every promise you've ever given. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.